With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. The criteria on the show are basically that we want people to tell us something that's truly interesting, that we don't know, that's, you know, novel, that's not widely known, and that's worthwhile, that's worth knowing. In other words, not just some base, some random trivia. Wait, tell that again, interesting? Well, let's see, interesting. Worthwhile. Worthwhile and not widely known. Not widely known. You know, novel and true, by the way. <laughs> can, I, can I suggest that this is almost advice in general, like if you have a job of any sort, like accountant or alligator breeder or astronaut, go through this exercise of thinking of things you know that are have these three qualities, interesting, worthwhile, not widely known. One of the attributes that many let's call them business successes have, people who are very successful in their careers, maybe not business per se, is that they have a real pronounced ability and appetite for self-examination, um, which sounds like, well, of course you have to, you know, look at how you're doing. But, you know, I find that many, many, many people I know don't do that. What, what's the skill of, how do you get the skill of self-examination? Like break that down into its components. So this is like, I feel like this is a, a reunion podcast. Know, like we shut down, question of the day. What has it been like? Our last one was like a month or two ago. Probably two months. Two months. I, I lose track of time. We've, we've gotten, we've certainly gotten together since then, but we haven't done question of the day. By the way, I was at a, uh, uh, a Quora meetup and so many people there said, oh, question of the day. But I just said it's on hiatus for now. Well, we'll see. But- that's not what this podcast Somebody tweeted about. the other day. We were, um, we had tweeted about this new podcast that you and I are going to talk about a little bit today and that we're launching it like now. And, which is a, and which, a, a, I just want to mention is a brand new type of format I've never seen in a podcast before, but go ahead. Yeah, it's a, it's a revolution, a podcast revolution. But um, we had tweeted about um, Tell Me Something I Don't Know, the new one, and that it was launching. And a question of the day follower wrote to say, are you going to discontinue this in a year and break my heart again? <laughs> and I wrote back, because I thought it was an interesting question. I wrote back to say, but what about the old, um, I think it was Tennyson who said, isn't it, you know, tis better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. And and uh, I think most people don't believe that. I think most people think it is better to have never loved at all than to have loved and lost. Well, and I'm well, not saying that the heartbreak from QOD question of the day is so severe that it's like, no, a breakup, but uh, well, a lot of people miss it. But I think that I think the interesting thing is is that podcasting is a just like television was, just like radio, just like any uh, medium or any communications medium is developing and inventing itself as it happens. And I think 
experiments in the format are are always worthwhile and that's what we did with question of the day we experimented with a different type of format than the you know there's there's 60,000 interview podcasts including this one um and then there was other ones like question of the day or uh you know other podcasts that, that we've seen like serial and stuff like that and now you're experimenting with a new one but i think i think that's the nature of the beast that there's a new creative uh, medium that comes out and people experiment. And it's also a lot cheaper. I mean, if you compare audio to video, um, yeah. it's, it's orders of magnitude. Video has gotten cheaper, but it's still, it's just so much more um, involved, you know, to make, a, you know, a five minute film or video. Um, and so like, yeah, audio, because it's like more two dimensional or whatever, cheaper, easier, you can experiment. Also, you know, like because it's cheaper, you can do it yourself, and you're not reliant on some gigantic media overlord giving you permission to make it. Even right, though. like it just takes recording. In, in the worst case, recording, making a homemade studio with GarageBand, or go into a studio for a cheap amount per hour and record a couple episodes, and then you just upload to and not, Right, and not only that, you have a show, you yeah. have your own show. But like, think about the distribution and the ease and cost. So, like, um, you know, we may have talked about this before. Forgive me if we did, but. You know, when I was writing journalism for the New York Times back in the day when the primary way of people getting it was on paper, right? Even though we went digital at the Times pretty early. Um, so if I wanted to write a magazine piece for the New York Times magazine, first I had the gatekeepers within, right, the editors um, at the big media organization. But then additionally, the cost of manufacturing and distribution were massive. So there were all the people who ran the printing presses, there was the physical cost of the printing presses themselves and all the labor, all the real estate, um, everything associated with that. And then distribution, literally the New York Times, not that long ago, used to own fleets of trucks to deliver their thing. Now you press a button and iTunes and the other distributors give it to everyone in the world who wants it instantly for free. I mean, right. the, the, the advantages now are just... And, and of course, this has happened with... Books, you don't need to go through... Uh, What's a an, book? <laughs> you don't need to go through an agent, editor, publisher, marketing team, bookstore purchaser. Those were all the people in the middle between you and the reader. So, so you don't need to go through any of that with, with publishing a book. With TV, um, not only are there more formats like Amazon, Hulu, Netflix that are buying original programming, but you can also just upload directly to YouTube. Same thing with music. Uh, where there have been many breakout artists on these things. Now, podcasts, uh, there's a lot of podcasts out there, but again, like any medium, there's lots of TV shows out there. There's lots of books out there. Yes, there are a lot of podcasts out there, and the best ones will rise to the top, and you experiment to see. But the other thing I want to point out about question of the day is that we did the experiment, and it's not like it failed. I mean, we were doing pretty good, and we had uh, a nice distribution and, and people listening, and but, but but the experiment kind of ran itself out. Like we were having trouble coming up with, we were having trouble. I would say from my point of view, being excited about brand new shows. Yeah, my and to my view, in my view, the reason the the main reason to stop was that because of the nature of the show, it was not an interview show. It was not a researched journalism show, which is more like Freakonomics Radio, where every week you take a new topic and you do a crap load of research. It was not a format like a game show, which is what my new show is. So basically, it was the two of us having conversations. And even though we are pretty good at having conversations, it's not like an infinite pool <laughs> of stuff We to get say. bored of each other. Well, I didn't get bored of you, but I got, I felt like I was, like, 
I needed to find out more stuff. I need to learn more stuff or do more research or, you know. Well, well um, one thing I learned from, from you and from Freakonomics Radio and comparing Freakonomics Radio, Serial, uh, uh, you know, other shows at that level with, let's say, even the best or the top ranked interview shows, which I'll throw mine in that tier roughly. Um, your Freakonomics Radio is highly, and Serial uh, and Startup are highly, highly produced. There's like, you have a team of people, you're, you're doing tons of research, you're bringing on several guests, you're editing segments pretty heavily. There's a lot of work that goes into every hour of yeah, production. you want me to show you a script? Here, I'll show you. You're gonna show me a script, I'm freaking out here. And, and I will say the higher pr- uh, level of production quality, sim- that simply translates into more downloads. Like I've seen that across the board. Well, we think it does. Um, I mean, I've we, seen it, it. It may be that there are a lot of highly produced um, shows that, that you, you don't know about. Cause no, no, but I look at the rankings yeah. and I see it's a, right. it's a pretty roughly direct correlation between highly produced shows and downloads. Um, you know, you had a brand that, with Freakonomics, yeah. but you would have lost that in the podcasting world like many people do if you didn't have a highly produced show. Right, so this is a script of an upcoming, the first episode in a series of three parts called Bad Medicine. So I'm, I'm holding this and it's like 40 pages and there's it's typewritten, but then there's... <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of notes written all over this. I'm thumbing through it right now, and it's crazy. Like, I would never think to do this much research, but this, again, you know, you have a, a huge number of downloads per episode, and that's, and that's why. You're, and, you're, and you're probably in the top one or two podcasts in the world, actually. I think um, – I'm not actually sure because the data on actual uh, – the actual data on downloads are – assembled by various people in different ways, but I, I know that we're up there. Yeah, so we so, do okay. So just to reiterate, I'm with Stephen Dubner, author or co-author of Freakonomics, along with Stephen Levitt. Uh, we've had you on uh, the James Altucher show, I think, four times. Really? Yeah. Does that put me in the top well, tier okay. or not quite? Uh, you, were in the, you were on in the uh, – we I interviewed you in the first week of, of starting. For like the in, swimsuit issue, I think that was, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The Freakonomics swimsuit issue, which was really freaky. And um, then you came on with um, How to Rob a Bank and you came on with How to Think Like a Freak. Uh, you might have come on when we introduced Question of the Day. So this is either the third or the fourth time. But now you have a brand-new podcast – which has a very fascinating format for podcasts. It's almost like a TV show style format. It's called Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Why don't you describe it to me? Because honestly, you're, I know it's just beginning. Um, your description, I think, for the podcast needs a little work. <laughs> so describe, p- pitch it to me, right. the show, and then let's discuss it. Because it's actually, I listened to the first pilot episode, which is not coming out till Monday, which is probably the day before this podcast is being released. But anyway, it's a great show. I highly recommend it once it once it comes out, and uh, I learned something from the show. Uh, but why don't you pitch it to me? So we should say that I'm the world's worst pitcher. Um, You're going to get a little better right now, no, live probably on not. the show. Probably not. So, uh, so my problem is, um, I know that the way you should pitch something, typically, what most pitches are, are it's X meets Y with a slash of Z, um, and that's just kind of not. The way I, I actually actively try to think the opposite of that way because I would rather try to be quote original or quote creative, even though I think it's almost impossible to actually be original because you know you live in the world and things swim around. Um, but I would rather be bad and do kind of what feels to me um, organic or original than to come up with like a, an awesome clone. So, 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 so but let me. 
ask you about that. So, so just to summarize what you said, mm-hmm. uh, rather than say this is, you know, uh, sharks meet tornadoes and we create <laughs> Sharknado. Uh, Wait, why do you say NATO but then NATO? Uh, sharks meet tornadoes and then Sharknado? Isn't that what the movie, how they pronounce the movie? I don't know. Does that make sense? Wouldn't it be Sharknado? Sharknado? It's Sharknado. Sharknado. It's like you say Soprano, I say Soprano. Okay. Tomato, tomato. So rather than saying, uh, rather than coming up with just some derivative thing, Sharknado, I'll touch her. I'll touch her. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Rather rather than doing some derivative thing where you say, uh, you know, uh, I don't know another derivative thing now, but Sharks meet Tornado equals Sharknado. (laughs) You're, You're... you're gonna say, you're gonna say, I'm gonna come up with something so original, it's not gonna be explainable. But no, I'm, gonna, I'm not. No, because well, that makes me sound even more pretentious than I sounded but, probably, but, for but, which I apologize. But I want to um, bring it back to what Stephen Johnson always refers to—that the best ideas that people accept come yeah. out of what he calls the adjacent possible. Yeah. So that we see something that we're comfortable with, we add to it, and that becomes creativity. Totally. And so people who separate too far from that. Uh, they end up getting uh, banished until they're, they're ahead of their time. They end up getting banished, like the guy who suggested sh- you not know, Semmelweis. Yeah, yeah. yeah, washing his hands before right. you know treating patients. He was like died in a mental institution or something yeah. until they ex- accepted it as common practice. So, so are you kind of going so far away from the Jason Possible? Because I think with Tell Me Something I Don't Know, which is the name of your new show, you could kind of do an X meets Y. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure you could. Let's um, do it. Well, I guess it would be standard journalism meets game show meets sit-down comedy. Because it's not stand-up comedy where someone has the floor for a long time, but it's more like repartee of a panel who are sitting down. Okay, so that's, so that's a little like Hollywood, the old Hollywood Square show. I'll take Hollywood Square. Like sit-down comedy. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say maybe it's like – it definitely has a game show format. Yeah. So it's game show meets – I don't know, Ripley's Believe It or Not, okay. or something like that. Right, which is what I think of as journalism. Right, okay, so, uh, all right, now I'll explain it. So I'm not good okay. at pitching, but I'll explain it. So basically, you know, I've been a journalist really since I was a kid. We had a family newspaper, and then I tried to, I was always trying to freelance and string even when I was a kid. And, um, and the thing that I liked about journalism is that it gave you permission to ask questions and to be nosy and curious, and that was really important for me because as a kid, I was really, really, really shy. Um, And so when I first started out as a reporter, even though I was technically a reporter, even if it was for like the school paper, you know, to go up to someone and say, you know, I'm, I'm writing about blah, blah, blah for the paper. Can I ask you a few questions? Even that was hard with the notebook. And so it would have been impossible without the notebook. So the notebook for me was always a, a little bit of a coping mechanism. And then, you know, you get better. By the way, that's an excellent technique for anyone. I agree. agree. Even if you just say, you know, I'm writing a blog, I'm writing a newsletter, you know, I'm curious to know. Or a photographer, uh, you have a great look, I'd love to take a photograph. Yeah. And I think, you know, being a photographer who shoots people takes unbelievable, you know, not just courage, but a kind of ability to, um, like my wife, who was a really great photographer. She doesn't do it anymore. And she did kind of very intense, often foreign, you know, she, she was overseas a lot. She did documentary journalism. But, like, the intensity and the intimacy, like, you need to get in people's lives for often weeks or months and in their faces. And, like, right. that's very hard. It's really hard for many people, certainly me. So, anyway, I've been doing some form of journalism, many different forms, for, for a while. And um, one question that I found 
that is really um, useful. Yeah, so one of the things that um, I realized I was doing a lot as a journalist, so, you know, if you're a writer or a journalist, um, you try hard to learn about the world, obviously, that's what you're doing, and you try hard certainly to prepare for people when you interview them. And But the nature of it is that... Um, by the way, do you think that's changed? Sorry to interrupt. Do you think um, that's changed in the past 20 years? I feel like yeah. journalists now, A, wait for the calls to come to them, <laughs> and B, are more about what's sensationalist because they're so desperate for page views so their company stays in business. Yeah, I'll be honest with you. I think a lot of the emphasis on how um, sensational or narrow or shallow whatever journalism is, I think a lot of that is silly. I think if you go back 100 years ago, overall the journalism was much worse on most okay. dimensions. Um, there was, I mean, it's, it's A, it's cyclical, B, it's human nature, but C, sex and crime, et cetera, have always sold. And but I feel, like, and, uh, I feel like there was a golden age of journalism there, after Watergate, after uh, all the president's men glorified, you know, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. It, it is certainly true that there was a period in American journalism where the, the, let's say, the median caliber was higher. But also, that's very much related to the economics of it. So journalism, newspapers particularly, you know, they – Newspapers had a monopoly. They had a variety of monopolies that they didn't even know they had. But basically, if you ran a newspaper in a city, you pretty much owned all the advertising for every job that anyone was offering, for every car that anyone was selling, for any house anyone was selling or renting, and so on. And they didn't really appreciate how unbelievably lucky they were. But that money fueled, funded journalism, which in turn they could afford to be go deep and broad. And then when they lost that monopoly, when the digital revolution began to happen, you know, then all of a sudden they're like, oh, my God, we, um, it, you know, we need to think of how to do this differently with a lot less, fewer resources. But I don't know if – look, I think you can be a really, 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 really good journalist with very few resources other than your brain. I mean, that's really what it's always been boiled down to. So do I think that the quality overall of journalism has declined a little bit in the last 20 years? Probably. There's probably less good journalism and more bad, but I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's hugely different now than any time it's been in modern history. Okay. I mean, look, I'm not a press scholar. I know press scholars. We could talk to them about, um, but I found that, um, so I try to prepare, um, and I try to, you know, ask good questions of the people that I'm talking to. But I realized that one of the best questions you could often ask, and especially this was if something came up impromptu, um, you met someone on an airplane, right? And they do something interesting, or you're at a conference or a party and people do something interesting. Like you want to know about it. You want to know about what they do, but you literally don't have the ammunition. You don't have the knowledge to ask a quote, smart question. Plus, I don't really care about seeming smart because I think that's overvalued. And I'd rather be honest. I'd rather, you know, act like I'm a relatively bright ninth grader. I'm curious. I want to know what you have to tell me, but I don't know how to get that from you. So I came up with this formulation just over time. It was basically, hey, tell me something, you know, if I meet you on a plane and you tell me that you are, you know, an alligator breeder or that you are, you know, a, a software developer, whatever, I would say, hey, tell me something I don't know about writing software. Tell me something I don't know about breeding alligators. And I found that that phrase was just kind of like this magic key that people would take it as a kind of fun challenge. Like, okay, 
I'm going to assume that you, the person who's asking the question, are not a complete idiot, so you know what alligators are, you know what software is. So yeah, let's see, you want me to tell you something you don't know about that? Okay. And inevitably, I would find that that was what they came up with was like so interesting. And so that was the inspiration for this new show, which I called Tell Me Something I Don't Know, which I've been thinking about literally for like five years. It took five years to get it from like... Well, that is interesting. So let's try that out right now. And then... Finally, we'll get to the description of the show and the details of the show and how interesting it is. And we'll learn some other things I don't know from the actual contents of the show. But on question of the day, we were always talking about golf. I know nothing about golf. You're a golfer. Tell me something I don't know now about golf after having hundreds of conversations with you already about golf. Sure, yeah. So no, no, I'm not it has gonna... to be something that's like quirky too, right? So I would be interested. There's lots of things I don't know about golf, which is like the, the average yardage per hole. I don't know about golf, but that's not so interesting to me. Right. So I, you want me to think of the, the best, kind of the most interesting thing that I think you may not know about golf. And it could be history. Um, it could be the bios of golfers. It could be so like... I know a fair amount about golf, although – so, so this is where and this is why, by the way, even though our show "Tell Me Something I Don't Know" is live, this is why we solicit people, contestants, way ahead of time, and make sure and and basically, like for every twenty or four, for every one person that we bring up on stage to tell us something fascinating, there are probably thirty or forty that we talk to, but we don't feel like they have something really that interesting. Because it's got to be the most interesting for primetime, essentially. Yeah, not even for primetime, just like truly interesting. Like the criteria on the show are basically that we want people to tell us something that's truly interesting, that we don't know, that's you know novel, that's not widely known, and that's worthwhile, that's worth knowing. In other words, not just some, base, some random trivia. Wait, tell and me that again, interesting? Well, let's see, interesting. Worthwhile. Worthwhile. And not widely known, not widely you know, known. novel, and true, by can, the way. <laughs> can, I, can I suggest that this is almost advice in general? Like if you have a job of any sort, like accountant or alligator breeder or astronaut, go through this exercise of thinking of things you know that are, have these three qualities, interesting, worthwhile, not widely known. So it's, it could turn you also into a better conversationalist. I, these I, are I ways to translate what I do into something exciting to other people. Can I tell you something I didn't know about golf until you told me that I thought was in- incredibly fascinating and I've repeated it to several other people even though I am bored to tears about golf, <laughs> which is that um, to be a better golf player, the one thing you can do to guarantee you'll be better from one day to the next, mm-hmm. is imp- and I didn't know this, is improve leg strength. Yeah, well, that's, um, so that's something I learned literally from asking the question, tell me something I don't know. That was, um, so this is a guy that you and I have talked about a good bit before. His name is Anders Ericsson. He's a, uh, a psychologist by training. Actually, he was a, a nuclear engineer originally by training, then psychology. And he's one of the people who kind of formed the, the school of research about expert performance from which the 10,000 hour rule um, came out of, et cetera, et cetera. And Anders, who, who, I've, who I've known for a while over the years and whose work I love, I was at an event. I was at some, I was at Florida State University where he teaches um, and I was there to give a talk. And it was during dinner before the talk and I hadn't known Anders was going to be there. And I was delighted and they, they knew that we knew each other. So they sat us at the same table, which was great. So we chatted, we caught up, and I said, you know, Anders, since um, the last time I saw you, I've become a golf nut. 
And uh, I'm doing okay. I'm improving. I'm working really hard and improving a little, but I, I really could use, you know, <laughs> a che- some a cheat sheet, you know, yeah. some advantage. He's basically he's, <clears throat> he's basically the master of the cheat sheets. Exactly. Because everybody calls him, like like Josh Foer, who's been on my podcast, but oh, yeah. he's becoming the U.S. memory, memory champion. Right. Who does he call? Anders well, Erickson. Anders is uniquely situated to talk about memory because memory was his first research yes. project with this amazing thing, at, uh, I think with Herb Simon at Carnegie Mellon, where yeah. they taught this random guy to memorize up to 30 some, 50 some, 80 I think some got digits. Up to 200 uh, oh my gosh. digits. It's, ama- it's an amazing story. Well, the also, record was like 50. Yeah, it's remarkable. So I said to Anders, you know, tell me something I don't know about, you know, golfers. Have you worked with enough golfers to know? Is there some overlooked uh, skill or attribute or something to practice that would help make me better? And he said, yeah, you should work on your leg strength. And I said, why? What's that have to do? He said, well, with putting, so putting, for those of you who don't know golf at all, although I'm sure everybody knows putting because you go to miniature golf or putting green, putting is basically really important because even if you hit the ball far and straight down the course, you ultimately have to put it in the four-inch four hole, and that's hard. And a lot of people who are relatively good at hitting far and straight are not very good at putting, but one putt counts as much on your score as one long shot. So, and you're trying to get the lowest number of um, strokes per hole. So good putters, you could, if you're a great putter and an okay golfer, you can be a very, very, very good golfer. If you're a great striker of the ball and a really crappy putter, you're never going to be very good. So he said that when studying good golfers, when, when they putt, one thing that they had in common was that they're very, very, very firm and steady over the ball, meaning no motion, no swaying, whatever. And therefore, that translates, that arrives from leg strength and working out, um, and that translates into a a sure hand when you're putting. And therefore, if you're going to work on, if you're going to go to the gym or do some kind of exercise as a golfer, that one thing that you could easily not think about but you'd be wise to not overlook would be working on your legs. So ever since then... I, if I go to the gym, I definitely spend a lot more time on my leg strength than I would have. Um, Cause I would think arm strength because you want no, to be able to hit like 200 yards. So that is a real, a very common misconception. So first of all, physical strength doesn't correlate very well uh, with hitting the ball far in golf, which is weird if you think about it. Cause you, you would think if you take it, okay. If you take two people who are equally skilled at the golf swing and one of them outweighs the other by 100 pounds, that one will hit it further. But um, I don't think it's very logarithmic. And additionally, there are a lot of smaller people who hit it a lot further than a lot of big people. So some of the, it's true that most pro golfers have gotten bigger over the last generation or two, inspired by Tiger Woods. A lot of athletes who are great athletes who might've gone into football, soccer, baseball, basketball, whatever, some of them went into golf. but additionally, you know, it's just the general trend. But there are still Rory McIlroy, one of the best golfers in the world, is relatively shrimpy, although he works out a lot now. Uh, Ricky Fowler, one of the best golfers in the world, is you know you could probably wrestle him pretty easily. Um, I doubt be- it, but because but go- the golf swing is much more about physics and strength, and the strength um, the the correlate for distance comes from your bottom half, comes from your hips. Um, comes from your legs. It comes basically from the ground up. Most amateurs, however, when you see the swing, it looks like, oh, you're just standing there and you're swinging your arms really hard. And that's why most amateur golfers aren't very good is because when you do that, you're, you A, don't hit it very far because you're ignoring the big muscles and B, uh, you're inconsistent because it's very hard to 
hit it. Straight. Right. I love little cheats like that. I just think it's You know, you you and I, okay, so maybe if we don't resume question of the day, or even if we do. Cheat of the day. No, well, cheat of the day would be good. We should make a mini podcast series about me taking you uh, to learn golf for a few hours and just yeah. see, like, I think you're the kind of learner, like, even if you hated it and felt that you had no aptitude or interest in it, I think you're the kind of learner that you could really, you'd be fascinated by. And see, here's what's cool about golf. This is my favorite thing about golf is that it's one of the few things you can do in life that I know of where the feedback loop is so tight and almost perfect. And what I mean by that is if I'm practicing, I can try. So, so, you know, in life, if you think, well, why am I not successful or why am I not popular? How could I be more X or Y or Z? You might try to change one or two things. I might try to sleep more. I might try to brush my teeth more often. I might try to work hard or whatever. But the tricky part is isolating that variable, right? Because there are all these other variables, many of which you can't control. With a golf swing, you're controlling all the variables. You know, in a given, let's say, hour, if the weather is warm, the wind is not blowing, whatever. If all that is static, the only variable is what you're doing. So you can control all those. And even though there are a lot of moving parts in the golf swing, if you try to make one slight adjustment, you can really note the change that that has because so, the feedback is immediate because you see what the ball does. So you're, you're saying it's a good environment to learn how to learn. Exactly. exactly. And here's my favorite thing about golf, as weird as this sounds. Well, this is not true. It's one of my favorite things because I just love to play. Um, but one of my other favorite things is that it is an awesome kind of laboratory or mirror of the real world. Not only the emotional stuff, like dealing with failure and all that stuff, which is obvious, but um, applying how you learn and get better to other things and being extremely self, not self-critical, but self-aware um, while also somehow magically not being so self-aware that you cripple yourself. And to me, that's how we all try to live our lives. We like to, we need to be able to be, and you know, Angela Duckworth, who wrote Grit, that you may have talked to, did you interview her? No, but she's definitely on my list. I mean, I love the book. So she, I think, is remarkable, and she's very much like Anders Ericsson in a certain way. So she said that one of the attributes that many let's call them business successes have, people who are very successful in their careers, maybe not business per se, is that they have a real um, pronounced ability and appetite for self-examination, um, which sounds like, well, of course you have to you know, look at how you're doing. But you know, I find that many, many, many people I know don't do that. What, what's the skill of, how do you get the skill of self-examination? Like break that down into its components. I think a lot of it for me, I mean, I can do it for me probably better than for other people is to look back, take really, first of all, you have to really take time. Cause there's, I, a, there's a cognitive bias against self-examination. Is, is that true? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like you don't, you don't, you don't, people don't, it is a cliche. You don't uh, think your shit smells. Mm. Right. Well, So for me, part of it is, you know, you have to create the time. So, you know, people create time to do all kinds of things. They create time to meditate. They create time to have sex. They create time to eat, whatever. To me, you have to create time to think about how you're doing, to assess yourself. And sometimes, I usually do this more after a failure than a success. I like to look back. Which is classic. Like, that's that's true for any game, really. Although it's good for success, too, but successes are rarer, so I have more opportunities to do it when things fail. But you look back, and sometimes it could just be like 
something as basic as like, I had a falling out with a friend or something. And like, let me just think about like, what did I do? How, how did I communicate and with that person? And did I, did I say something or do something that I may have perceived as, you know, benign or innocuous and that that person may have perceived as, you know, unkind or aggressive so, somehow. So breaking that down, do you, something bad happens, do you assume, do you, as an exercise, do you assume you did something wrong and then ask questions into that based I on probably, other examples yeah, of things being done wrong I, in relationships? I probably do, and but you've identified something that's an, uh, an important question for anyone, which is, do you assume that you are in error? So I always not assume, well, but at least, um, throw it out there so you can have something to question. Yeah. I, I mean, personally, and this is, I think just a function of having grown up the way I did. I always assume that I'm the, I'm in the wrong. I always assume that it was my error, which is not because you're the uh, youngest of a bunch of brothers. And it wasn't even that it was just about being very religious. Like, you know, you basically, all you do all day is sin. Yeah. You know, um, which I'm not saying is, uh, uh <laughs> and you were sitting in two religions. I, I was, I didn't like even know Jewish it. And Catholic. I didn't even know it, but, um, no, I always assume, but I, I am getting less hard on myself as I get older. Uh, maybe even to the, to the, to the detriment of, um, good self-examination. Now I, I think I'm assuming more that when there are failures, like I know I'm not perfect, but man, those people really stink, you know? Uh, so ask questions. What's another for self-examination? Uh, go back and read your emails. So I find that a lot. So email and whatever, however you communicate, you might text, you might email, you might whatever. But this is not just uh, social relationships. No, also in no, like, but uh, also in business and reporting and whatever. Like email, it, written communication is very two-dimensional and you're missing all the inflection. You're missing humor. People make mistakes in writing and in reading. And I find that a lot of problems that I'm constantly encountering, like people failing to follow through or to do stuff or to get the idea are, are the result of literally poor communication. So I try to, um, try to look back at that, um, with something like golf. Um, you know, we've talked, we talked about this a little bit on question of the day for me, I would say that 80% of my failures in golf are the result of, um, are cognitive failures, um, of being, either uptight or nervous or worrying about an outside perception rather than my inside production. And so once you have a big enough sample and you can look back at yourself and say, oh, this is the button that I keep pushing that is inhibiting me. As opposed, so cognitive failures as opposed to physical holding the, holding the Yeah, no, like, here's the thing. Here's the thing about golf that I find interesting. I as a golfer, and, and by the way, I'm I'm extrapolating this to business and and other sports and other games because I think a lot of it is I think eighty to ninety percent is for any field that you want to excel at is going to be cognitive failures as opposed to the the basic learning skills which we could learn in like ten minutes usually. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I mean, obviously, some things have physical difficult degrees of difficulty that are high. Like, you know, if I have to hit a 98 mile an hour fastball, that's something that physically most humans just can't do. Right. But that's where golf, again, you and I, before we started recording today, we we're talking about why game playing is so awesome because you can interact like with a, with chess or backgammon or a board game. You can interact with anyone in any language of any age of any background. And that's awesome. But you know, all games are different. One thing that's cool about golf, even though it is a stick and ball game, 
unlike baseball, like I am not going to be able to hit a 99 hour an hour, 99 mile an hour fastball probably ever. If I ever could have, even when I was young, I'm never, ever, ever going to do that. Um, at least hit it fair, hit it far. Golf though is pretty weird in that um, even people who are really old and pretty weak and whatever, they can be pretty good golfers. It's a different kind of game. It's really you and the ball and it's stationary. But here's the thing. I'm not a very good golfer. My handicap's a 12 or, yeah, 12 for people who know what a handicap is. Um, But even though I'm not very good, I am capable maybe one out of five or one out of 10 times of hitting a shot that is as good as a pro would hit. So that's unlike, you know, basketball or football. Like I'm never going to dunk zero out of a hundred, but one out of 10 or one out of five, I can hit a shot that a pro would not be able to hit. Maybe, you know, a pro might hit it seven out of eight times. I might hit it one out of eight, but still it's the same shot. Mm. So physically I know that I'm capable. So why can't I do it more often? And that's where, so there are two answers. One is because consistency is a physical thing and that's, you have to keep working at it. But two is because if you let your cognitive, um, if you get your you know, alligator brain involved too much, which we almost always do in golf because it's a stationary ball, you have all the time in the world to stand there and think, uh, I must, my butt must look funny. You know, I feel like my stance is pretty good, but if people are watching, I must look like I'm sticking my butt out. Like, what am I doing? And then like, oh, my arm kind of itches. And I wonder if I paid that bill, you know, all this crap that can happen so that even though I'm physically capable, my cognitive overlord will um, create failure for me. And, but knowing that is the way to, to deal with it. How do you, so, so knowing that's the first step, being aware yeah. that you have, there's cognitive failures and that's the cause of not just golf, but maybe business failure, failure in other endeavors, failure in writing, whatever. How do you solve? Uh, right. That's the million dollar question. So, right. Okay. So I'm all about like the solutions. So, Right. I, it's hard enough. Tell but, me I, something I don't know about uh, uh, solving cognitive failures. Well, I'll tell you something that I learned for me about solving the cognitive failure in golf. So this is very narrow, but obviously you have to look at it's all of the every look, every problem and every solution are case specific. That's one thing I really learned with a lot of work in Freakonomics is that you can come up with like you, you can say, you know, people respond to incentives right? That's a a baseline belief that I have that I believe the evidence shows. But which incentive will work on which kind of people in which circumstance? It depends. It depends a lot. There are financial incentives and social incentives and moral incentives and an incentive that might work well for most people for six months might wear off, et cetera, et cetera. So it's incredibly important to keep looking at the data, to keep being critical, to keep being, you know, analytical and so on. So for me, for golf, for this one tiny, tiny, tiny incredibly unimportant problem to everyone in the world, but me problem of getting my brain too involved. I thought, okay, so what can I do to decrease the possibility that my thinking is going to get in the way of my acting? And to me, I thought, well, give, uh, close the window of thought. And what that means is when you play golf, you have basically everybody has a pre-shot routine, there are the certain things that you do ahead of every swing, which involve um, think, you know, selecting the club that you're going to hit, uh, thinking about the conditions, thinking about the shot, maybe practicing the swing and so on. Um, and then um, 
And then you address the ball, you get up to the ball in your stance, and then you swing. So I found that the, the, I do all the pre-shot routine, whatever I want to do there, try to get some consistency. But I found that that differences, variances in that didn't seem to matter very much. The one variance that seemed to matter a lot is once I get up to the ball and stand over it in the kind of athletic swing, if I can um, decrease the time between getting over the ball and executing the swing from like four or five or six seconds to mm. like one second, there's literally no time for my stupid brain to get involved with my slightly less stupid physicality. It's funny. And so because- that's my cheat. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of Entertainment at NBC or whatever? 
So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gotta use HIMS from now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at HIMS dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hims.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. It, it turns out like even when they study things like chess, that if you decrease the window of time to sitting down and making a chess move, it doesn't really change really? the, uh, you, you might even make a better move or it doesn't change the outcome that much. So it's, so it's an interesting theory that might apply to many things that your gut actually might have a better answer than your prefrontal cortex, which does all this kind of like, should I do this? Should I do that type of thinking? Right. I mean, I mean, that calls to mind, obviously, like what Malcolm Gladwell wrote about in Blink, the whole idea of, you know, fast decisions. It also calls to mind what they tell you when you're a kid taking tests to, you know, your first guess is, if it's a guess, if you don't really know, your first guess is more likely to be closer than a later one. But with chess, I would think that there are so many possibilities to run through. But a strong player, their intuition will have run through. Really? Them. Really? Yeah. Are okay. you, I mean, is that the case for you? Uh, well, I only play blitz chess and like fast oh. chess now. So I don't, I haven't even played slow chess in 20 years. How different are your blitz moves than your slow moves? It's hard to say now, but I would say uh, for a five-minute game, just as good as my slow moves. Really? Yeah, hardly ever different. Hmm. Um, in fact, sometimes better because I'll be a little more reckless in fast chess and take more risks. 
And that sometimes if it's, if my intuition is backing the risk, thinking, oh, this seems like a good risk to take, that usually works out well for me. Interesting. But let's get down now to your new podcast. Tell me something I don't know. It's, I'll describe it a little bit. Um, you have a panel of three expert guests. Then you have an audience. I would put expert in quotes. I'll put expert in quotes, <laughs> but they're, they're, they're kind of they're known. They're kind of known, well-known known people. Yeah. Um, you know, like a professor, a comedian, a doctor, mm-hmm. whatever. Yep. Um, and then you'll have an audience of intelligent people, and, they're, and they have professions that suggest that they might know something that the panel doesn't know. Right. And they'll, you'll select uh, from the audience. They'll stand up and say, here's what I do. Here's something you don't know. Um, the, the panel will ask questions about the thing they don't know, and then it's revealed what they don't know. And then at the end of the show, the panel votes uh, on the biggest thing they didn't right. know. Like a, they pick a winner. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm ambivalent about the gameplay part. So I but like that it's a game. Interesting because I don't know. It might it might be different than what I thought. So that's well, interesting. it's fun. I mean, I mean, well, here's what oh, I would oh, wait, ask. Tell, tell me, give me an example. Like, tell me something I don't know that came from. The, the first episode of Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Um, sure. So, And I watched the show, so I have my own opinion. You watched it or you listened to listen it? Listen to it. Let's listen see. to it. Um, so let me see. I'm a, little, I'm a little reluctant to totally give out um, – uh, all right. No, I'll, I mean I, I'm a little reluctant to give out an, a, a quote answer because if people listen to this show before they listen to the first episode of Tell Me Something I Don't Know, they'll already know. But that's okay. I don't, I don't really care. It's a, a little bit of a spoiler. So for instance, here's one thing I liked. Um, one of the what we call contestants is a guy, uh, uh, a, a medical doctor, medical researcher at the University of Toronto, a guy named Donald Riddlemeyer, who uh, whose research I've followed for years. It was really interesting, really quirky and interesting. And so his um, what we call IDK, his I don't know, had to do with the perils of voting, and the idea was, you know. I think the way he phrased the kind of riddle was, what's the most dangerous time uh, to vote? But it, it wasn't really so much about time of day. It, it was, uh, so what's, what's the dangerous time, uh, in ter- dangerous in terms of like there's more deaths or, or violent yeah, injuries? Yeah, but really what he came to tell us was a very simple but very um, you know, useful fact to know, which is that uh, the way that we do voting in the United States um, is dangerous in that about 28 people die Every year, on average, on a, on a presidential election day, twenty eight extra compared, people. He compared from, it to the Tuesday prior and the Tuesday after. Right. So he's good with data for medical research. He's very, very, very good with data. And, and so twenty eight people are dying. I should say of from traffic fatalities. And not, it's not just people who are driving to go vote. So so the reason seems to be that there's a lot of unusual and a lot of extra auto traffic on election day. People. They might be rushing to vote. They might be rushing home. They might be driving someplace they're not used to driving. There are just more cars on the road. It's just an unusual traffic day, and 28 people each year die more as than a result New Year's of that. Day, I think he said the rate. I believe is uh, I can't remember. I think New Year's Eve is still. Yeah, I think he did say it used to be the most dangerous. So his point was that um, on in certain look, I have a bugaboo. I, it's a pet peeve of mine about traffic fatalities because. It's one of these things that is, okay, relatively it's very safe. 
for the number for the trillions of miles driven because 28 is a small number compared to 100 million people voting exactly exactly so and how do you know if that's but, statistically significant uh well because of the number of people who die every year it's certainly i mean 28 more in any given day there are 30,000 people roughly who die in the u.s in a year from traffic fatalities so divide that by 365 and 28 extras, quite a lot. Yeah. But my point is that 30,000 people die roughly every year from traffic fatalities in the U.S. And like, we kind of don't think about it anymore. It's kind of the cost of doing business. But I will guarantee you that for, I would say, all right, I'll bet $100 that for every person listening to the, your show right now, every single one of them knows more people who have died or been grievously wounded in a traffic fatality than have died or been grievously wounded by, let's say, gun violence, which relatively, other than suicide, which is twice as common as homicide. But the fact is that um, this is something that um, is pretty dangerous, um, not on a per person, per lifetime uh, uh, level necessarily. And so he identified this in the data, which I found to be pretty cool. And the, the advice, the solution would be what? Well, you know, uh, maybe we have voting on more than one day, so it makes it easier for people to do it when it's more convenient. Maybe it's all online voting. Maybe it's all, you know, a different form of voting. So, so I love a piece of data like this. A, when he, when he came on the show and asked what's the most dangerous time of election day, it was sort of obvious to me. And, and even one of your panelists said, oh, the end of the day. And, and, and then his explanation's reason it, it was interesting. But I liked how he did the statistical analysis to prove this is really true. But does this strike you? Because this almost seems like an interesting extension, of a, a playful extension to the concept of Freakonomics. Like, does this strike you as a Freakonomics-ish type of datum? That, that one certainly does. And there are others, like, I think another one in the first episode that was I liked a lot was another doctor. We actually had three doctor contestants this one night, which was just a coincidence. But this other doctor who's a sleep researcher, he basically explained some new medical research that seems to answer the question of why we sleep, which I've always wondered, like, don't you think it's weird, James, that like there's 24 hours in a day and the human body goes totally dormant, unconscious, like almost dead for a third of it. Well, you know, I, we know, we all know the health benefits of sleep. So the benefits. Yeah. But the but, reasons, but we don't know, but I guess when I was thinking about it, when I was listening to it, I was like, Oh, is, is this like, I just interviewed Arianna Huffington. She wrote all about sleep. So we know, there's the tons the, of the sleep. renowned sleep scientist, Ariana Huffington. Well, she talked to a thousand <laughs> sleep scientists. So, so we, we all know the benefits of sleep, but I guess it, I was thinking that we don't really know why there's these benefits. And his explanation was, in fact, fascinating. So what I liked about his explanation, now I'll give the spoiler, is it, it's not only about the need for the physical, you know, we, we do, you're right. We know a lot about that sleep correlates uh, with a lot of outcomes, which are important outcomes. But uh, one, um, the fascinating to me part of his explanation is the function, what's happening in the brain during sleep would seem to be a process that we hadn't thought about before. Okay, so what, what's happening in the brain that happens when we sleep? which is something that wasn't widely known until this recent and, and research. And I did not know it until I listened to your podcast, Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Oh, yeah, all right. Thank you for the plug. <laughs> it's basically a process 
And again, this is, um, I mean, it's, it's good research. Who knows how valuable this will turn out to be. It's a process. It's incredibly valuable, and I Googled it afterwards. I would like to think it's valuable. It's basically, and this is what I love about this particular contestant, this thing, is that this was research designed to answer one question, and it produced a finding that could have huge ramifications for a totally different arena. It's kind of like, you know, thanks to NASA, theoretically, computing advanced a lot. I don't know how true that really is. I hear that a lot, whatever. But, like, thanks to people trying to figure out why we sleep, there seems to be uh, an an advance in our understanding of um, a lot of other disease like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and so on, which is to say that when we sleep, our brain cells shrink and the corridors between them are flooded with spinal fluid that is meant to literally wash away accumulating proteins. I hope I'm, look, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a scientist. I, I think I'm saying all that, right? That, that is what he And those proteins it. that when they build up can cause, um, you know, these cognitive difficulties like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and so on. So that was, uh, that was something I learned on Tell Me Something I Don't Know. So, so what was great about this in tell, uh, these two things you mentioned, the, the 28 people who die on election day, if they, if they are driving to the polls. Oh, by the way, I should say, sorry, an important caveat. It may not be 28 voters. It could be some innocent kid that's walking down the street. Basically, right? basically close to polling close time, don't drive or well, don't go outside. It's re- and it's really election day. I mean, if you really wanted to stop it, you would say, hey, all mail-in ballots, which is, you know, not very realistic and maybe not the right solution to the problem. Oh, oh what? Mail-in ballots or, you know, online ballots instead of, why should people oh, right. physically have to oh, go well, to someplace well, on one given day? Well, it should be online voting ultimately. Yeah, or at least on a weekend when people are not... Uh, but 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 it's it's specifically the close of the election day when people are kind of rushing and so they're, they're, they're a little more stressed True. and tense. And it's dark. So, so these are two things. These are two facts that... At first, I thought going into this podcast, oh, I'm going to learn some quirky, funny things that I could share in a cocktail party and get people to laugh. But then it turns out, you told me- Did we bum you out? Is that what you're saying? No, you told me two <laughs> things that actually could improve my life. Like, be a little more careful uh, towards the end of the polling day on you know election day, particularly a major election day when everyone's voting. And sleep like make, a mouse. Make sure it's actually pretty serious to sleep like eight hours a day, particularly if you have- like let's say dementia or Parkinson's or Alzheimer's in the in the family. Exactly. Yeah. So so I don't know if there's any. Other- I should say though that even though the so this is why I said earlier I'm ambivalent about the game show um, part. I love that it is a game show because it's really fun. It's fun to do. But- it's fun to be in the audience. But to me. The game show is like the Trojan horse, and what's inside the horse is like stuff you really want to know. I disagree a little bit because I think people are incentivized to give you the most interesting, quirky, I don't, the other people don't know these things because they are in the game. That's true. That's a very good point. So the game show is kind of part of this completely. Um, I will add, and I I won't give away the spoiler on it, but then you have um, kind of this end segment where uh, it's like a, a team-based play of, to, uh, you know, kind of topics. Tell me, they, they spin a wheel to come up with topics and they have, the team has to come up with something that the audience doesn't know. And there is something relating to um, vampires and, and how headstones <laughs> are placed over that was graves. Pretty, that was which, pretty cool. Which was interesting and yeah. it wasn't quite Google fact-checked, although I tried and there was some relevance there. But it was, it was, very, it, it was very interesting. But... Um, what else? Now, I haven't listened to – you have some other episodes in the can. I haven't listened to those. Um, what else? Have, what, what's another – just tell me one more interesting 
um, fact that you've learned from Tell Me Something You Don't Know uh, over these next several episodes um, that could help my life. I want my life to be better. That's the only reason I have anybody on my podcast. So make my life a little better. All right. Um, I'm going to look at a list here. So we had, um, well, this won't make your life better other than be entertained. One of the founders of the Blue Man Group, Chris Wink, was a contestant on the show and, and talked to us about- A contestant um, or a panelist? A contestant. Because uh, most of the what we call contestants are actually extremely accomplished and well-credentialed people. You know, it could be anyone, anyone who's got something cool. But it turns out that a lot of people who have something interesting to tell have something interesting to tell because they're very, very accomplished and interesting people. So he talked about um, colloids, which are a form of... Um, um, you know, when you see Blue Man Group and you see all the stuff that they put in their mouths and swallow and spit out and so on. Anyway, no, I don't know. What, what oh, are, what are well, they I'm not good at explaining that. But suffice it to say that if you like Blue Man Group or have seen it, then episode three you should see because Chris Wink, one of the founders, talks about that. This was an episode called Things That Go In Your Mouth. So it was mostly about edible things or um, let me just find one. Like I want to find something from our list of things that are – well, here's something – that I think could help you or anyone. Um, so there was this guy uh, who presented. He was also from Toronto, I think, just coincidentally. He's an academic, but I can't remember his discipline. Maybe an engineering guy. And he talked about whether, about as a college professor, whether it's a good idea to let students um, uh, compare their grade to the average and it's something I'd never really thought about before, and it didn't seem that interesting to me. But it also seems very Freakonomics-ish. I like this. Yeah, but everyone on the panel that night. So on the panel that night were um, a comedian, Keisha Zoller. I don't know if you know her. She's really – she's awesome. But also Austin Goolsby, who's an economist who used to be the, um, the chief White House economist. And he's a really interesting, also pretty funny guy. And Angela Duckworth, who wrote Riz. So Austin and Angie are both um, college professors. So when this guy was talking about this notion of what happens if you don't tell, tell students what the average is, they were fascinated with it and immediately took the conversation in a place where I would have never imagined. And so basically, um, his argument was that it's a, most people want to know how they compare to the average, but that it's bad for almost everyone. And in retrospect, that doesn't sound like very... Um, interesting or weird, but... But is it one of those things where it's because they know this extra information they can start to game it? I think it's less the concern that they'll game it and more the concern that they'll settle for less, that we basically all mm. try to achieve a kind of mediocrity. Mm. Because his argument is that, like, you know, when you're a student or when you're learning anything in life, what's your goal? Is your goal to, like, be good enough to not be an outlier or is your goal to like actually learn so that when you go into practice that you'll actually be productive and good? And obviously we know the answer for most of us at least is the latter, but the problem is is that the way that the education system is set up, we tend to respond to the incentive that's surrounding the former. So, so Im improve my life, like tell me how I can use this. Uh, I think the single easiest way, as I understand it, and this guy, this conversation that took place in the show was much better than a conversation. You know, I wasn't involved in this conversation. That's why it was so good. It was basically like, you should not give a flying crap 
about how your effort and even your outcome when you're learning something, when you're training, compares to everybody else. Well, it's, it's, it's absolutely irrelevant. It's absolutely irrelevant. So you should worry much more. So here's the way I would translate it. Worry much, much, much more at all times about your absolute measure versus your relative measure. And that will also make you happier, by the way, because it's when people start to relative start to measure relatively in terms of you know income and good looking and all that's when we get um that's unhappy. when we get unhappy absolutely well, it's interesting because uh i'm reading bob dylan's autobiography oh, yeah. uh chronicles or whatever yeah. he calls it and he says when he was first starting out you know he obviously was obsessed with folk music and playing and listening and performing and he said uh many people would sing and you could tell they were trying to promote themselves the most like they were trying to belt out the song and show off their voice and, as opposed to the song as opposed and and he would always forget about himself and just put all his energy into just performing the best possible song put the song yeah. first is what he said right. and it's the same kind of principle and this is what he wrote that's 30 really or 40 years ago it's funny i'm reading um bruce springsteen's memoir how's that right book now. it looks good you know i like i i went through a period where i loved 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 him um and i think we may have you and i may have talked a little bit about i actually got to meet him once when I was playing music and he was weird. Did you have enough. like a kind of a gay man crush on him once you met him? Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. But um, but he was weirdly enough, believe it or not, even though I really liked um, some of his music a whole lot, he was one of the reasons why I stopped playing music is because he, um, when I met him, he had just become like huge. It was Born in, uh, Born in the USA record, which was, you know, now is obviously a long time ago, but um, it was his first gigantic, where he went over from, he crossed over from being like, you know, a cool rock and roll guy to like being a pop star. And he didn't like it. And like, it was causing problems for, in his life. And it wasn't like I had some big profound conversation with him. Um, I was more like a witness to this conversation. Um, but it made me realize that, man, you know, that goal that everyone goes for, like being famous, that's maybe that's the wrong goal, you know. And so um, I, he, you know, I he was very influential to me in my in my life, even though he didn't know it, of course. And um, and so I but the last like 20 years of music he's made, 25 years, I, I haven't liked very much just the way it goes. And uh, so I was really excited to like connect with him in this book in the, which describes obviously his whole career. And uh, it's funny because like, he's a good songwriter. He's a, obviously a really, really, really good songwriter, but reading it, especially in light of the news of Dylan getting the Nobel in literature, which is its own kind of weirdness. Like, I hate to say it. He's just no Bob Dylan. He's mm -hmm. just not like as awesome as Bruce Springsteen is, if you like, uh, look, this is totally subjective, but if you like, you know, creativity and artistry and like originality, it's an order of magnitude difference. That's what think, I'm saying. Do you think on the day, so on the day that the Nobel Prize was announced with Bob Dylan, obviously a lot of writers were thinking, why did I wanted to be picked? Why did Bob? Uh, to so, all those writers, but, 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 I say, you know. Yes, I agree with you. But do you think, in, until you said this about Bruce Springsteen, do you think all of a sudden all these songwriters <laughs> woke up like Elton John, Bruce Springsteen, whoever, and said, why they pick him? Why oh, did no, they no, pick no. me? No, that's not what they thought. They thought, oh, if they're going to give it to someone, obviously it's Dylan. And then they thought, oh, shit, they're not going to give it to another musician for another hundred years. Huh. That's what they thought. That's interesting. <laughs> so, so 
uh, that's like the way every economist, like if I'm an economist and I do game theory and I'm only 50 years old, which is relatively young for the Nobel, and then two 70-year-olds get it for game theory, I think, uh-oh. They're not going to give another game theory prize for a long time. I hope I'm still alive then because it's uh, you know only for the living. So, so another question I have about tell me something I don't know. Like Again, the average podcast is like you and me sitting here talking. It's relatively easy to, to put together and, and, and so on. And there's various levels of production quality. Like I'll have an editor go over this and you and I have known each other for a long time and whatever. I'll do, I'll do my extra things to, to make this good. And I, I listen to, to your episodes and, and prepared. But this was another level of production quality and work that do tell me something I don't know. It's really like the setup for a TV show. You had to find guests. You had to find a location to get an audience and guests together. You had to be somewhat scripted. Like you said, you picked out of one out of 30 uh, audience members to present their thing. Um, then you had this another segment, the, the Wheel of Danger. Then you have to edit it. Uh, and then you have to prepare. You, with each episode, you had a different set of three panelists, yeah. a different audience. This is hard work like for a podcast, which is still a developing medium. It's one thing if it's going on ABC and you're going to have millions of listeners on day one, but this is, this is a developing medium. Uh, I don't know. So the question is, are you crazy? Yeah, I I think that is the question. Like how much work was this? And does it feel like it's worth it? Um, so short answer is it was a blast. Um, but yeah, it's a lot of work. We have to cast, how, for how, panelists. You, how many people for the panelists, how many people do you ask versus how many people say yes? Um, so I'm probably not the best person to ask because I do have a production team that they actually did most of the, the but, hard work. on. So that, I know but, your production team and they asked me for quite a bit of contact info of different people. Yeah. And none of them <laughs> said yes. Yeah. Apparently. We probably asked, um, you know, probably overall for every one panelist we got, we probably asked for somewhere between five and 10, but a lot of them, but a lot of it has to, a lot of the difficulty, a lot of people wanted to do it, even very famous, you know, we have some fairly well-known people, a lot of very well-known people want to do it. Part of the issue of casting this, unlike casting, let's say, Freakonomics Radio, Freakonomics Radio, if someone wants to do it, uh, we say, great, when do you want to do it? And we find a time to record. This is a live show. So we have to have Three panelists, a bunch of contestants, and a couple hundred people in the audience. A couple hundred? In the audience. How many people are in the audience? You know, uh, I think the place where we recorded the first uh, season, um, 180, something like that. But that's just, you know, that's audience. That's not, yeah, so not everyone in the audience is a potential contestant. There's just a handful that we kind of already know who will be there. So, yeah, but yeah, we have, it's a, it's, so we're doing a couple things that we're producing a How live do you get event. Hundreds of people show up in the audience. Uh, you know, you tweet and you, I don't, I don't know, but I think we were, we were close to sold out. I think our first six that we taped in uh, September that are now being released starting now. And now we're taping uh, another season of 10 episodes starting in, starting quite soon, December and January. How come I haven't been asked? You're going to be, you're going to be, you're going to be, you're going to be a panelist. Um, We're also going to do it out of town. We're going to try to do it in, um, I think we're going to start fairly locally, try to do a couple shows in Washington and Boston. You should do Las Vegas too. Vegas would be really good. But you can get like. So, like you had Annie Duke on one of the episodes, yeah, right? Yeah. So you can get like really good gamblers are good at like, you know, assessing the odds of, of every situation. So you can get really good gamblers of like, 
you know, poker, backgammon. I also you know, love the former mayor, Oscar Goodman. He'd be really good. I don't know if you know him. He was no. a, a mob lawyer who became mayor of Las Vegas. And now his wife, he got term limited. Now his wife is the mayor. She'd probably be good too. I don't know She's her. like the Ava Perón of Las Vegas. I guess that's true. Um, so yeah, no, in answer to your question, it is a lot of work. That said, it was hugely fun. That said, also, um, for me, who's used to doing a lot of journalism, not in real time, not in front of a live audience and so on, I, I like it. I'm not a ham, really, but I really enjoy the live format. I love interacting with the panelists. I love, here's my favorite thing. I love that we're basically turning journalism or podcasting, or whatever you want to call it, upside down, where rather than have, having us, the people in, quote, power or authority, like have a piece of trivia, and then we make you have to guess it. It's the opposite. We're saying to the world or to the audience, tell me something I don't know. Tell me something I don't know. Anyone is eligible. You can do this, you know, someday I'd like to think that we'll be playing this game in schools with kids in refugee camps with people trying to figure out how to make your way in a new world. You know, I, I really think it's um, it, the instinct oh, yeah. of this. Someone is, can easily make a game, like a board game on this. Yeah, board game, you know, maybe. I mean, an I app, don't. An I don't, app. An app. I mean, I don't really care that much about like the business expansion part. That's not like what I, what excites me. But I do like the idea. I, I love the idea of like um, unleashing this show in a way that makes just people generally who who listen to it think, oh yeah, I should more often like you know I've got a ninety four year old grandmother and I've never really talked to her much. So the next time I go see her, I'll say, hey grandma, tell me something I don't know about growing up in the nineteen thirties. I think that telling tell me something I don't know is an excellent way to kind of start interesting conversation as opposed to how's the weather type of conversation. So it's a, it's a good way to avoid. Although small it's talk. interesting, I think in one of the very first, maybe the very first question of the day episode we ever recorded, one of the first, I think something similar came up where, where it was like, how do you start a conversation? I remember what you said, you said, where are you from? And I thought, really, you're going to, that, that's your best answer, James. And then we, but then like we, we talked about it for a while and I realized you were totally right. So if you say that, tell me something I don't know, is your new, where are you from? Then I'm, well, I, I'm sure you're right. I'm very hard. <laughs> it's very hard for me to like, uh, start conversations. So I'm going to use this, uh, technique. This, this also improved my life. Now, one final thing I'll ask, it seems like you're really, uh, exemplifying kind of the reinvention that's happening all across, uh, all across society in the sense that you've gone from musician to journalism to sort of memoir writer, to Freakonomics writer, or your four Freakonomics books, to Freakonomics radio. Then we tried a slightly easier format with question of the day. Now you're in a, a much more com complicated format that I've never seen in the podcasting world before with tell me something I don't know. What are you learning about this process of reinvention? Like, what? T tell me something I don't know about you that you've learned through this process of reinvention. So... This has been a long and painful learning process, but to me, for me, uh, the most important um, act, you know, strength or the most important position, now that neither of those words are right, but the mo to me, the most important um, change in approaching all this as a, quote, creative person, I don't think of myself as like a whatever artist artist, but you, you know, are though. Yeah. But, um, but here's the thing. Um, makers make 
and managers manage and never the twain shall meet. And I hate to sound that uh, black and white about it, but if you have an idea about a business, a product, uh, a piece of uh, media, music, recipes, whatever, there will inevitably probably be the need for some collaboration with some kind of company or distributor or whatever. But you know what? Even if they're the most wonderful people on the planet, and I've dealt with some wonderful partners, they're not you. They don't think like you. They don't care about the same things that you think about. And the only person at the end of the day, the only, 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 only one who really cares about how the thing that you are making comes out is you. But but it's not that what they're doing is less important. They they could be very proud of how they manage putting it together. Yeah, this is not against them. I'm not saying that you're superior. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that you are you. <laughs> and, I, and, and I'm not saying that someone who's maybe involved in the marketing or the distribution or the manufacturing of your thing doesn't add a lot. They often, obviously they do. But at the end of the day, you have to remember that if you want something done in a way that represents you, your spirit, your soul, your work, I mean, you're right. The, 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 um, this thing costs a lot of money and a lot of time. I had to start a company to do it. And it may be a total failure, although so far the indications are good. I mean, if you look, I mean, the iTunes charts would seem to suggest so far that early on that it's going to do well. I have no idea. Um, but you know what? Even if it totally fails, um, I'll feel pretty good about it because um, because we created something kind of out of whole cloth. And even though it may not be awesome right out of the gate, I think it's pretty good out of the gate. I think it'll get better. Um, and I think people will like it. And that's a, to me, that's like a good feeling as opposed to like begging some media company to let me make something that they're willing to fund. And the thing that I'll make might be okay with me, but quite possibly might be something that kind of sets my teeth off a little bit, and I just don't want to do that. This reminds me of a quote from Jerry Seinfeld. Uh, he was on Howard Stern, and Howard Stern was saying, Jerry, the entire world was begging for you to do another season of Seinfeld. You know, even GE was offering you, you know, $100 million right up front to do another season of Seinfeld, and you said no. What, what, how come, you know, if, if, a, if, if 300 million people wanted you to do another season, why didn't you do it? And Jerry Seinfeld said, well, that's why I created the most <laughs> successful TV series ever. And those people didn't. Right. Like, I know when to stop. Right. So, uh, well, congratulations on the launch of this episode. It's or this this new podcast. The episode I listened to was excellent and it did make my life better. So I hope each one does the same. And I highly encourage everyone to to listen to it. And once again, Stephen Dubner, very good friend of the James Altucher show. Come back on uh, the next time you create something. I will. And now it's time for some backgammon. Yes. Yes. So I think you're going to win this match, too. This particular sub-match <laughs> of, the, of the more bigger global match, which I will point out I am winning. <laughs> for more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey, thanks for listening. Listen. I have a big favor to ask you, and it will only take 30 seconds or less, and it would mean a huge amount to me. If you like this podcast, please let me know. Please let the team I work with know. Please let my guests know, and you can do this easily by subscribing to the podcast. 
probably the biggest favor you could do for me right now, and it's really simple. Just go to iTunes, search for The James Altucher Show, and click subscribe. Again, it will only take you 30 seconds or less, and if you subscribe now, it will really help me out a lot. Thanks again.